Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today, I've got a dear friend on who I've known for over 15 years. We've worked together. We've had businesses together. We speak really almost daily. Um, she's one of the strongest with over 30 years experience. She was the former president of One Sotheby's in Miami, the former president of Compass in Florida. Beth Butler, welcome to the show. Here. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm excited to be on the, the show and I love your podcast and I'm honored to be a guest. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. It's uh, as one of my dearest friends and it's just fun to have a conversation with with a buddy um but you know we've got three decades of questions to get to but before we do that um you know this is a global podcast and and listeners really love to hear about the real estate market where my experts are so tell us a little bit about the Miami market and where it is in this moment in time from your opinion, and then we'll jump right into the interview. Thanks, Michael. I will talk just a little bit about the Miami market and where we stand right now. I think like a lot of markets, it still feels a little tentative, right? People are trying to figure out what's going on. Um, our cancellation rate is up still about 30 to 40% versus new contracts which is probably about twice of what it normally is, but that I think is what you would expect. We do have, you know, inventory is dropping ever so slightly as people take their property temporarily off the market or listings expire and don't relist. Uh, we are seeing quite a bit of price reductions in the last 30 days, about 25% of listings have been reduced. So I think that feels like everybody believes that we are headed towards some sort of devaluation in market value overall. The hardest hit segment right now, just like happened in 08, is the market's a bit bifurcated. So the very high end, people are still closing under $500,000, inventory is short. And although deals are falling apart, they're immediately resold. Mortgage availability is still pretty good in that. It's that one to three million dollar mid market in, in in South Florida that is particularly suffering at this moment, and that's likely to be what we see going forward. You know, as the market deteriorates a bit, it sort of it's like a donut hollows out from the center out. So that middle market is always going to be the first impacted. It's also uh, comes back pretty quickly. I think, kind of turning to more positive news, the prospect for South Florida is good overall. It seems that there will be an uptick, I think everybody believes, in domestic travel as we get out of this. And so second home markets, um, like we have in South Florida, will have good prospects going forward. So I think it's good news, bad news. Um, we're struggling. We'll see where it's going to go. In the meantime, I think overall forecast for the as we go forward and kind of start to work ourselves out of this, this is very positive. You know, it's interesting you say that. I literally just got off the phone with a, um, I am the chair of the ARIA Global Board, um, Corporate Board of Governors, and I had the call with the board uh, today, literally right before our interview. And it was interesting because, you know, we were getting an, um, an overview and insight as to where this pandemic is around the globe. And we had um, one of the um, members is 
has the largest real estate operation in mainland China. And so it was interesting to see their perspective because now four months into this crisis, you start seeing things open up there, which is really a positive sign. And a lot of the economists are like a V-curve inverted um, economic uh, positioning where we're now sort of getting to the bottom of this, hopefully, and then there'll be pent up demand. So Q3, Q4 could look very strong for markets. So I think that there is a lot of hope in the marketplace. And obviously, as you're going through it, it doesn't feel that way, especially, you know, I'm sitting here in New York City and it's it's a different world. Right. You right. know? I, and I and I think overall, it just depends on, you know, a lot of the outside economic factors that we're not really sure. seeing right now, but just hearing about, right? What happens? I mean, is this really recession? What's that going to look like? How high is unemployment going to be? How Precisely. is that affecting move up, move down? Are we going to see foreclosures? Like right now, everybody just has questions. And yep. I don't think anybody has answers. It's great to hear the insight into China as they're on the other side of this. So, you know, let's hope that we, I think we're all praying for that V-shaped recovery curve, and it sounds like China is there, and hopefully we're not far behind. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really great because in this um, time of uncertainty, obviously what really does permeate is uh, experience, and you have no lack of that. And uh, it's, uh, you've had an extraordinary career in real estate, and I have specific questions about uh things that I've known about and things that I'm going to discover about. Uh, but before we get there, can you just share with the listeners how you started? Um, it's a funny story. And, 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 and thanks for asking, Michael. I, it just, I, it was almost on a whim. My background um, educationally was in financial analysis. I was a cost accountant. And when I had my first child, I was not living in Miami and Miami is home for me, as you know, sure. and I really wanted to get back to Miami. I mean, I missed Miami in a way I can't even describe to you. I felt like I, it was like a family member. So I was dying to get back to my family and be back living in Miami. So I moved back and actually got into uh, data programming, payroll programming for small businesses. Um, I knew how to do database programming and this was, you know, early days, right? So people that were paid on commission had no way of automating their payroll. So I could actually, I actually went in and wrote programs to do commission processing payrolls for insurance companies, real estate companies, and like that. And about this time, I ran into an old friend of high school from high school who said, listen, I'm getting my real estate license. Why don't you get one too? And we'll go into the business. And that's literally how it started, like wow. almost on a whim like that. I thought that sounds like fun. I love Miami. I have an appreciation for it. We, I got my license and I primarily did commercial business when I first started, did a lot of commercial leasing. We had some contacts with the city of Miami at the time and I did, we leased out some of their spaces and that was a lot of fun. And I ran into somebody at one of my, you know, kids' school functions who said, we're looking for a house. We just moved here from St. Louis. We can't find anything. And I thought, well, I've never done residential, but let me, tr let, let me see. Cause like most commercial people, right? I thought, 
it has to be easy. So literally, I opened up the Sunday paper, and this tells you about how long ago it was, which was a long time ago. <laughs> but opened up the Sunday paper, I saw an open house, I called them, and I said, hey, guys, have you seen this particular property? And they said, no. I said, it sounds like exactly what you're looking for. I uh, worked the Coral Gables market, and it was a two-story, old Spanish, $160,000, which, you know, now it's probably 10 times that, but $160,000 and it was open. So I thought, you know, this is really easy. I went, I picked them up. We saw the house. I thought it was a bit peculiar that at the open house, the seller was back in his bed, stretched out watching Sunday afternoon football. But we kind of <laughs> skipped over that, right? I thought this residential thing, this is hilarious. We went back. We wrote a contract, I presented it, it was accepted, and I thought, this is the easiest thing I've ever done. I mean, really, I, I could not believe how simple it was. Well, of course, how naive I was about that. We got into it, um, the buyers, you know, this was right after the SNL downturn, and the buyers had literally mailed in their keys on their house in St. Louis. They had not told me that, and so them getting a mortgage was a challenge, but lo and behold, I did find someone who was able to get them a mortgage and we got over that hurdle. So I thought, okay, now this is going to be smooth sailing. Well, we went to the closing. It was my first residential closing. I was so excited, right, to go and get a nice big check. I thought this is great. Sat down at the closing and I thought it was odd that there was a man there with a suitcase handcuffed oh, no. to his wrist. Handcuffed oh, to no. his wrist. And I'm watching this and I thought, well, does this happen in all residential closings? I mean, is there always a guy with a briefcase handcuffed to his wrist? And he took the proceeds, he put the check in his briefcase, closed, walked out, and they took the seller away, literally in handcuffs. Turns out <laughs> that the seller was had insider information on the building of the Dolphin Stadium, which Dolphin Stadium now is Joe Robbie Stadium back then. Right. And he had bought up a lot of the property around where the stadium was going so that he could mark it up and make a profit knowing it was going to be worth a lot more once the stadium was there. And he was caught and uh, convicted and they took him away. They figured that he had purchased the house with quote unquote ill-gotten gains. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. I was hooked. I thought this is better than anything you could watch on TV. <laughs> better than Miami Vice. This residential real estate business was so exciting. And it was the 80s, and it certainly was. So I was hooked from that point forward. So it was, it was a lot of fun, but that's a long story of how I really got involved with the residential real estate business. This is extraordinary. It was welcome to Miami, wasn't it? <laughs> it was very exciting. I thought it was awesome. I think this is why I love Miami. This is <laughs> nothing. It is never dull here. I thought you were going to tell me that the person who had a handcuff to the briefcase was going to pay. I thought you were going to tell me it was a briefcase full of cash. Oh, we did have those. They were common <laughs> back then, right? You, you, you did literally have people come to closings when it was legal with cash right. in a suitcase and you didn't ask anything about it and oh it was, my gosh know, miami real estate in the 80s was it was a wild time but again so exciting made you feel alive it was yes interesting. you had great stories to tell it was ne <laughs> never never a dull moment and it was fun <laughs>
because somebody should tell yeah somebody should tell those miami real estate stories because i i think i just caught the tail end of it (laughs) (laughs) well listen florida has always had an interesting real estate history right sure from one day it's the start of where a lot of scams start taking place it's um a lot of people that just found money five minutes ago and how they spend it you know mortgage fraud capital in the yeah. bubble you know the condo it, it does seem to be front line of where things start to happen in the real estate market so of course you gotta love it i mean <laughs> it keeps you alive doesn't it <laughs> yes it does. and smiling I- Absolutely. Well, listen, I know you probably have a lot of stories, so I want to go into some of your your career highlights. So you were the chief operating officer of EWM, which was the Christie's affiliate in in Miami and really dominated the market for years. And I think that's where I first met you. And you spent uh, spent 15 years there. And so I have a question. How did the Beth that entered EWM in the beginning differ from Beth, the executive who ended up running the organization? Well, that's interesting. You know, I thought, you know, when I, I joined EWM in 1994, and so it was really, I started it with my first full-time sales management position. I'd been a sales manager with Kai's company before that, but it was, you were sales manager and you still sold real estate. So when I moved to EWM in 1994, it was the first 100% sales management. So I think there were, I had a lot to learn in that regard. EWM was a very small company at the time. It's two offices, had a relatively small staff. It had been, you know, EWM stood for Esslinger, Wooten, and Maxwell, which were three ladies that started the company in 1964. And they had a very interesting uh, personal history. These women all got into the business later on in life and formed this company. And we were all very proud of that culture of, you know, women-centric and especially at the time, like second, third, and fourth career women or first career, but in their 50s when they started this business. So it was a lot about understanding and exposing myself for the first time about how important culture was to an overall uh, company, and especially in real estate, right? Everybody, what the, the nuts and bolts of what everybody does on the competitive land, landscape is the same. How you define yourself and grow ultimately, which is what got me to the COO position, was to really understand what differentiates your company from everything else. And I studied EWM, right? Understanding the history of the ladies, that reputation for really trying to do business in a highly ethical way, community involvement. And I'm sure for people out there listening, you can think of those companies in every market where this was that company, right? They were community involved, presidents of the board of realtors and the chamber of commerces and head of all of the charitable foundations and very involved in the community, a lot of community support and very highly thought of in that ethical reputation. And so I think in early years, it was really just understanding that, discovering that that is the the integral secret sauce of every company. And then as we grew, trying to understand how I could take that secret sauce 
and package it in a proposition that would attract people to come there and grow, right? So the first thing I did is that I was a sales manager in the Coral Gables office. Over the first three years, I built that office into being the number one real estate office in Dade County, which which at the time, you know, I thought was 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 a big accomplishment and starting with a small local Coral Gables office, but just making sure that we got the right agents in there. And then we started to really grow organically. And then I started to understand and learn about and talk to people about how to build a team. I, I was still relatively young in those days. And so I didn't have a lot of personal experience in building companies. And we, I relied a lot on talking to people that had done it before other industries who do I hire first? Do we need a marketing person? We need a head of marketing. Growing into 1998, where we had done, we had gone from those two offices to 14 and hiring sales managers, regional leaders, just really building that organization, but all based on that foundation of that highly reputable culture that we had started, that, that was there before I ever started, but was able to really capitalize that on growing the company. So from beginning to end, beginning was all about learning. I like to think I never stopped learning. In the end, you know, the company was sold to Berkshire Hathaway. It was a Home Services America company in 2001. That was very interesting. And that's when I moved from general manager to chief operating officer. And then was really able to see what that, how does a good company fit into an overall corporate structure? Right. We, we never had that huge corporate structure before. And in those days, I don't know if it's still true or not, but in those days, the real estate arm was a division of the electrical companies. So we literally reported up in the upline to Mid-American Energy. So there was a very interesting transition because you've got an energy company, electricity company that really didn't have any idea how about how the real estate business worked and that learning about how to take real estate, which is a very non-traditional industry, and try and get it to work under very traditional corporate structure in a company that really had never really dealt with real estate agents or real estate business before. So I guess there's a long way of saying it was a long road. It was an interesting road. There was just a lot to do. But fundamentally, that building on culture was the number one thing I took. And over the 15 years I was there, really understanding how to maximize that. And, and, and that's the one thing that might take away from EWM that I was really been able to leverage for the rest of my career. It's just the and, importance of culture and how to build on culture. And, you know, and, you, and that's such an incredible lesson because that is, as you said, the secret sauce of any organization. And to really sort of think of the fact that you go from two offices to 14, you work from an organization that was started by three women in the 60s and it becomes a family type of business setting almost to then really having a corporate setting. There's a lot of different skill sets that have to happen there. A lot of uh, adaptability. You have to be a bit of a What skill sets did you recognize in yourself to be able to go through all of those different phases and not only go through them, sell at them? What skill sets did you recognize in yourself for that? Well, you know, I think it's a lot of things. I think fundamentally, and you'll probably hear me talk about it more throughout the rest of the interview, it's just that always open to learn something new and different. I, I feel like a lot of my 
work in real estate has always been about being a student of the business. There's always things we can learn. I mean, we start off talking about the market in Miami. You know, I sit in this pandemic and I think, what are we learning? What new skills are we developing? What different, different indicators are there in the market that we didn't see in 08 or 01 or, you know, all the times before? What are we seeing now that we didn't see then that we can learn as we build? I think this is a business fundamentally of just always wanting to learn and be open to change. I think the second thing you really learn is just how to roll with it. You know, that pivot, resiliency, you know, I left in 2009, 2008 and 2009 were really not fun. So all the growth you have, as I, as I've said, it is a much more fun to grow the business than to shrink the business. So, you know, in 2008, going into 2009, as we did have to go through layoffs and close offices, reduce staff, change things, demote people, move people around, pivot just to be able to survive, figure out how we were closing the, you know, 1,200 new construction units we had out there when people didn't want to close. It was that resiliency of just showing up, right? I just used, I used to think if I could just keep showing up, we'll get through this. So that's just resiliency and just being open to listen and learn and pivot no matter what comes at you, I think was the most important skills. And, you know, and those are interesting things because it is, it is that type of thing. Learn it, right? Everything that is being thrown at you, you mentioned 2008, we're now dealing with a pandemic. It's, it, it almost seems like, you know, life is, is repeating itself. History is repeating itself, not just with the idea that you're still pivoting and you have that skill set, but you also now have the added benefit of the wisdom of having gone through it before. So it's uh, it's an interesting time to look at it from there. Um, so that's interesting. Right. And I think what you learn is, I think from a critical thinking standpoint, is what you learn when you go through a lot of uh, ups and downs, um, booms and busts, is that critical skill of thinking what comes next, the chess move, what's three, four, five moves ahead. And it's something that I, especially in this pandemic that I look around as I listen and look in all these video calls and conferences that we're having, a lot of people are very entrenched in the here and now. And I understand that, but the skill that everybody needs to hone is I need to think what comes next. And maybe I don't know exactly what's coming next, but let's model three, four, five different scenarios and what that looks like so that you know what comes next and you can effectively lead towards what comes next. Most people, I listen to so many people that are just firmly rooted, but that skill set of trying to understand what comes next, what's not, what's not tomorrow, but what's next month and the month after that, gathering the fact and trying to be able to make good decisions. I think you learn with experience and then how to take that and thrive in a competitive landscape. Because no matter what happens when we get out of this, we're still back in real estate. It's still a competitive landscape. You got to figure out not only how to survive, but how to thrive. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, and, and in that competitive landscape, the other thing is that you've worked for a lot of the, the different competitions. So, you know, after EWM, you were actually at the other large player in the market, whom I worked for as well for many years when I was 
in Miami, which is one Sotheby's, and it was growing at a fast pace back then, but you seemed to really adapt to the culture there. But you also brought a greater structure to that organization that really did help in their growth trajectory to where they are now. Talk to me about that structure that you brought into it, because, you know, one thing was creating the culture at EWM, but, you know, one side of sort of already had a culture, but you came in, adapted to that, changed it a bit, made it more efficient, and then learned how to put in other strategies to grow it. Talk to me about that experience. Well, I, I think just to start with, you know, remember that 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 Mai De La Vega, who I'm sure everybody knows, is the franchise holder of the Sotheby's franchise in South Florida now. She does an amazing job, but yep. she bought that franchise. She's the second person to have the franchise. She bought that franchise in December of 2008, which, you know, she looks back. That was such a brave choice on her part uh, because the world was falling apart. You know, I was there. Am I crazy? <laughs> am I crazy? Right? Am I crazy to be buying this franchise? And like a lot of people that I think get into that find the opportunity to buy a great business or a franchise like that, she had some experience, but really didn't understand how to leverage the Sotheby's brand. Right? She knew how to leverage it from a sales perspective, but how do you create an organization by leveraging that brand, especially in a market? that was challenging at best. So as you said, there was a lot of ingredients there, just like at EWM, just like everywhere I've been. There are a lot of base ingredients there. How do you put it all together? To give the cooking analogy, how do you put it all together and make something that is very palatable and sets a foundation for growth? She had a lot of the basic elements. It was just, again, building that structure for growth. She was very, she was, and is very ambitious. They, that company has grown, you know, now they're all the way up into Palm Beach and Vero Beach. They, they, they're all the way up the East Coast now. And this started, there were literally 30 people in the company. Yep. So the, the growth trajectory was huge, but you've got to be able to identify and build those structural components to be able to facilitate that growth. And to have that plan for growth in that strategy. One of the first things we did uh, once we got the staff straightened is we opened Fort Lauderdale, recognizing that that's the next big market that you need to take advantage of and be able to grow there. They wanted to be that player that they are today. They wanted to have that East Coast presence. How do I get there from 30 people in, a, in, in an office in Coral Gables? So trying to build that staff structure, trying to figure out how do we sell the brand sold itself. But that whole play of I'm over here at this company coming to Sotheby's, what is that going to give me? And at the time, the Sotheby's uh, corporate marketing department really built phenomenal tools. They understood the luxury real estate landscape in a way that even in the downturn, as that market was coming back, there had to be a leader that emerged. Remember what I said back, you've got to know how to get through it and not and then to thrive in the competitive landscape. Sotheby's fundamentally understood how to thrive in that landscape when you came out. We're going to come out of this as a luxury leader. And they built all the tools to be able to do that, which, of course, downstream, if you just knew how to put it together and package that in recruiting, was, was, was the fuel that you needed to be able to get the agents come in and get everything building. 
So it was part structure, right? Staff structure, who are the right people we need? Accounting people, departments, professionals, attorneys, building that corporate structure, and then really being able to understand how to leverage the brand and in that emerging luxury market that was happening in 2009 and 2010. And, you know, and it was something that was built really so well. I mean, I know firsthand I was there and it was uh, it was a great structure. And, you know, it changed the idea of what it was. Those 30 agents are now, you know, I think a thousand agents when last count. And it was interesting to build that one Sotheby's brand as as opposed to just, you know, the Sotheby's brand itself. So I thought it was a really interesting way to do that. And it was so effective. Well, and understanding that owning a franchise was more than just having a local office, right? Sure. So it wasn't just, it was how do we build a significant real estate brokerage that's also a franchise. And the, the fact that they've been able to merge and acquire other Sotheby's franchise as they've grown I think is a testament to that theory, right? Because so many sure. people get into a franchise and it's like an agent team. Like I want to use the brand because the brand is phenomenal. I want to use that Sotheby's brand and I'm going to use that and I'm not going to share it to anybody. But the people I think that have done best in my estimation, the people that understand that that brand is a lot more than just about your personal business as a top producing agent. It's really about building that extraordinary company. And one has certainly done that. A hundred percent. And then, you know, now if that wasn't enough, you then became president of Florida for the other large firm. And you started the operations actually in Florida through your networks and you grew their offices to really be very competitive and grabbed a significant share of the market. Start believing in the vision of yet a new brand entering the marketplace. How did you do that, Beth? I, I think sometimes I must have been crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I think, what was I thinking? I, you know, Well, I think that's, number one, a testament to what a great salesperson Robert Rufkin is, because he really talked me into doing it, and he did have to talk me into doing it. And I started um, Compass in Florida as a first expansion market, and it was literally me in a WeWork space five years ago now. And there was nothing. When And when I tell you there was nothing, there was nothing. At EWM, there was a great, there was already a great little boutique company there. At one, Maya had already started. She had the brand. She had a great little start of 30 agents that were totally dedicated to the brand there. But this was like starting something from nothing. New York knew a little bit about Compass, but in Florida, nobody knew anything about it. And it was really interesting. I think, again, in this case, which was not the opportunity the other two, I did have that opportunity to grow something from nothing. And Compass, didn't, as it grew, did become a great name. But what happened in the growth of things is a week after they opened in Miami, they opened in Boston. And then two weeks later, they started in California, which literally was like a vortex. Like every corporate resource in the in the compass organization got sucked to california as soon as that opened so when i when i we literally were left to our own so it was in a way like i was starting my own company and that's how i approached it i took it on as if it was mine and just leveraged what i knew how do i make that culture how can i what kind of compelling statement of course the technology certainly 
helps. It's a great story. But how do you build a culture around technology and real estate, right? How is that helping? What's in it for me? And the ability to be able to hire great staff ahead of growth was such an advantage because people would immediately come in and then get everything that they needed to be successful as opposed to waiting, you know, in a traditional organization as you grew, because it's, again, it's a low profitability business. So you don't have the ability to go out and hire a huge staff and then grow the company. It has to be, you grow the company, you hire this person, you grow the company, get more business, you hire this person. At Compass, we were literally literally able to fully staff ahead of growth, which was in turn a huge accelerant to the growth. So in, in three years, we were able to get up to 500 agents and grow from there. We were in Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County, and in Naples, and it was fun. It's been a tremendous learning experience working with people that literally had no real estate background whatsoever, but the exposure to some of the brightest people from Amazon, Google, Facebook in a real estate environment has been very invigorating and, and creates yet again, a very different culture inside of this company. So even though it might be some of the agents that I've worked with at all three companies, right? They came, they went from EWM, they came with me to Sotheby's and then they came to Compass. Every experience has been different and working at Compass is very different than from an agent perspective than it was working at one Sotheby's or working at EWM. And that's largely because of, because of that technology and startup business uh, personnel that permeates the company. Well, it also says a lot about you that agents follow you throughout your career as to where you are as well. And I know that you've got huge fans in that regard lesson you ever learned in your career? Well, I, I mean, I think that it's a couple of things. I mean, I think that what you said for sure makes a difference. In this business, the people matter. Sure. And I think sometimes we forget that, right? But fundamentally, this is a business of people. We don't make anything. We don't manufacture anything. We are a business of agents, the service business, and our customers, our agents, are are our real assets. And we should never forget that. So I think that's number one. The people are important is the first thing. And then I think the second thing is you've always got to be open to reinventing yourself. I don't worry. And we've, we've, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of our my younger associates this in these last two weeks about this. People nervous about losing their job and what comes next. And what I know is if you're open to reinvent yourself, there'll always be an opportunity for you. You never really know what's around the next corner, right? When I left EWM, I thought I was out of the real estate business forever. I mean, it was 2009. Well, you know, who was hiring in 2009 in the real estate industry? And from that, I went to one Sotheby's and I thought, okay, now I'm done. I'm going to go back. I'm going to be an agent. And then came Compass. You just always have to be open to reinvent yourself and to whatever opportunities come, because they will come. You, it, it, it's not the end until it's the end. So just be open to that reinvention. And I think those are my two things. Reinvention and the people yeah, matter. I love that. The people do matter. That is our asset. It is our industry. Everyone can 
technology until they're blue in the face, but you always want to transact business with someone that you like, someone that you have a relationship with. Um, and so a lot of so important, but I love the second lesson. It's really the idea of just being open to opportunity. And opportunity does exist, and it exists around us at all times. We just need to be cognizant that it's and to be able to recognize it. I think that's the other side of it, is to be able to recognize it and say, this would be something that would be interesting. I have no idea where this is going to take me, but I'm going to take this journey. Right. You know, and and is it and and it's the journey that's the most interesting, right? It's not of the destination. Of course, it is. I think far too many people is like, I want to make sure that in the next five years I'm here or there. And although I think it's important to set goals, I also think goals can can to take you away from real opportunity and the yeah. things that you learn and experience along the way. It really and truly is about the journey and not the destination. That's a hundred percent right. And you know, you probably, I'm going to, the next question I was going to ask you, you probably already answered, but what's the one bit of advice you would give somebody entering the business today? I think for, for, for agent, from an agent perspective, people that are thinking about getting into the real estate business as an agent, I'd say that that business is fundamentally changed. This is not like when I got into the business, right? That I would meet someone I met, you know, connected with an old friend from high school, let's get our license and we'll go sell real estate. It's not that capricious sort of business anymore. It's not something that you enter lightly. We used to ask people when we were interviewing new agents, you know, do you have six months of reserve to start this business? I think that question has changed now is, do you have not only six months of reserve, but what kind of additional assets can you deploy to set up this business? More than ever, real estate agent, you know, a real estate agent's business is not about buying and selling houses. It's about creating that business, right? Teams are now what used to be that small brokerage, right? If 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 Essling, Anna Mae Esslinger, if Esslinger, Wooten, and Maxwell were going to go into business today, they'd form a real estate team, not a real estate company. Sure. And going into the business in that respect is a very different mindset than, oh, I'm just going to go and transact. Creating that business as opposed to understanding the ins and outs of the transactions, which you still need to do, but you really need to be thinking, how do I staff up? Who do I hire? It's much more about building a company and a team structure than it is than it used to be just about going out there and meeting people and buying and selling houses. So I think best advice, get a business coach. Understand that as you go into it, right? You are out there building your own business. You're not just getting into a transactional business anymore because the future is going to belong to these large teams. So I think after that, for somebody that's getting into a staff or management position, I'd say learn to become a good utility player. Uh, in this day and age of specialization, I think the people that survive are the people that can do multiple things, that have a diverse skill set, that can play more than first base, that can do more than pitch. I think that there's always still a place for specialists, but for people coming in, it's good to learn a diverse set of skills so that you can literally move throughout an organization without being a single vertical. I think those are both valuable lessons. And I think that that's a great piece of advice. And I actually like the idea of what you're saying that anyone entering the business now should look at it as they're building their own brand. And if that's how they get to it by going into a team, that's amazing. And some 
are actually larger than what some corporations are um, when you start looking at small independent companies, you know? And so that is a great piece of advice. Um, and so after the 30 years plus that you've spent in real estate, if Beth Butler weren't doing real estate, what would she be doing? You know, I think this is such a hard question. <laughs> And maybe it's, you know, now that I know from, what did I learn from coronavirus? I learned that I'm elderly. So now that I'm elderly, oh, it. maybe it's just, I've been doing this so long. Well, yeah, I didn't know I was elderly until they told me I was. So, <laughs> but I've done it for so long, I can't really imagine doing something else. But I think fundamentally, one of the things that I enjoy the most about the things that I do is that coaching, teaching part yeah, being a mentor, I love to mentor. So if I wasn't in real estate, I think I'd look at doing something like that. How can I do coaching? Maybe even go back and teach. I would love to. I would love to be a college professor, I suppose. Um, so I think it would be something along those lines. I love that. That's great. I mean, yeah, I get so much from mentoring as well. And it's always that sense of knowing that you've helped change somebody else's life. And that feeling is just, you know, it, it's invaluable. And it is, um, and it's amazing because, you know, we live in a, in a community, we live in a society, we're part of the human race. And if we can help somebody else and elevate, it's, it's really everyone's responsibility to do that. Yes, I agree. 100%. You know, so, you know, I always ask a lot of my guests and I always love to hear the answer that many of them give. But I want to ask you, what's the legacy you'd like to leave behind? Again, this is not something I've thought a lot about. I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm not one of those people that really, you know, contemplates that much. And I know people do. I know it's very contemporary and of the moment right now to think about your legacy. I think, of course, the first thing that pops into my mind is my real legacy is my children. You know, I have two adult children that I'm very proud of, and that's my living, breathing legacy. And the grandchildren, I that's my first legacy and what I am absolutely most proud of. But I think from a business perspective, I think that it leads to the question that we talked about just a minute ago. I measure my success not in all the metrics we have, right? The growth rate, the market share, the number of agents, number of offices. When I am down and I'm trying to figure out what am I really contributing, I really think about those people that I've helped in these in these many years I've been in the business. When it was an agent, it's the people, like I go back to that first residential deal. I had no idea what I was doing, but somehow I was able to find people that had mailed in their keys to mortgage and get them in a house that they still own today. The sales managers that I've developed and helped, the staff that I've seen, the people that I've seen grow and mature to be leaders in the industry, the real estate agents that I've coached that now have thriving and successful careers because they pivoted at a moment from a marketing perspective or team perspective. It's those successes that I hold nearest and dear and think about that's what matters to me. So I think in my legacy, that's what I'd like to, that's what I'd like it to be. I don't think it's about accomplishment. I'd like for people to think that I was fair and I was honest and that I made a difference. 
Well, I can tell you that you have made a difference in my life that I've known you for such a long time. You have been such an incredible leader in this industry. And I thank you, Beth, for the conversation today, for really learning more about you and really going through your history and career, which I think is always a lot of fun because it is so rich and you've helped so many people. And I thank you for the conversation today. You're welcome. Thank you, Michael. I love this podcast. Please keep doing it and uh, stay safe in New York. (laughs) Thank you so very much. And thank you all of you for joining. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Thank you all. 